break out your wireframes and heat up those Git repos. We're ready to tackle topics ranging from accessibility to front-end design, user experience, and beyond. You're listening to the Drunken UX Podcast with your hosts, Michael Feenan and Aaron Hill. Hello, everybody. You are listening to the Drunken UX Podcast. This is episode number 112 for April 11th. We're going to be talking about a couple different JavaScript topics, also about just the semantics of HTML, and not so much the semantics of HTML, but the semantics of HTML. You'll get what I mean here in a second. I'm your host, Michael Feenan. And I'm your other, other host, Aaron how you doing, Michael? Hi, hi, Aaron. <laughs> welcome, welcome back to our normal recording schedule in the evening, where we can get absolutely destroyed and share how much we feel about whether or not HTML is a programming language. <laughs> Stay tuned, Michael. Uh, in all seriousness, Michael has not disclosed his side of this argument and says he will surprise me later. So we're I, going in cold, one, baby. I, for one, am excited to find out. What, what this is going to go like. <laughs> Aaron has told me the hill he will die on. And I said, <laughs> are we on the same hill? And he doesn't get to know. Uh, yeah, so we, we've got a, a few little topics that we wanted to talk about. And before we get to those topics, let me real fast make sure to give a huge shout out to our Patreon backers. If you are interested in supporting the Drunken UX podcast, be sure to run by our site at drunkenux.com slash support. You can back the uh, the show at any level that you want. We've got a few predefined, or you can set your own and do what's comfortable for you. Um, that will help us make the show better and more accessible for all our listeners. Yay. Also... If you are interested in sharing something you have built or done or are working on or want to suggest a, a guest that you would like to hear from, you can also hit our contact page or find us on Twitter or Facebook and let us know what it is you would like to hear, and we will queue that up in the next part of Season 5. I just want to make sure everybody knows we are listening. Um, and if you are a Patreon backer and you make a suggestion, it's much more likely we will both do that and get to it quicker. So little incentive incentivization incentification um decentification I, I don't know if that's a word it's not uh, hey aaron yeah what hey. are you drinking buddy i've got the last i just poured actually nope i stand corrected there are a few drops left i'm gonna pour those out now <laughs> just like eh, we'll give them a home there we go they're they're back with their buddies yeah um it's the last of my um and please say this correctly for me. Ardbeg? Ardbeg? Yeah, Ardbeg. Ardbeg. Um, Ardbeg 10. It's the last of it. I. It's been fine. It's a pretty smooth, easy drink uh, for being an... And I'm also saying this wrong. Not, it's not Islay. It's... Isla. Isla. Yeah. Because I've, I've had I've had the Lagavulin uh, 16 before, and it was fine, but it was like... A little intense. Um, that is, I mean, it's kind of funny to me that you would say Lagavulin 16 is intense, but Ardbeg 10 isn't. <laughs> that, because I'm the exact opposite. I've had Ardbeg 10. I do not like Ardbeg 10. Yeah. It's, it is way too medicinally. It's The iodine comes through too hard. Hmm. Um, it's got a very pungent flavor. Lagavulin to me is just good and smoky. Yeah, I think maybe it's like the... The smokiness was unexpected or something. I don't know. I, I should have, I should go back and try it again. I didn't dislike it. It was just like 
I, my first scotch was a Balvenie 12. So that yeah, was like very where different. I kind of came in at. Um, and so uh, trying other ones has just been different. Yeah, this yeah. It's fine though. And yeah. I mean, it just goes to show, you know, the the best way to drink whiskey is the type that you like the way you like mm-hmm. it. So um, thank you, Whiskey Tribe. But, um, <laughs> and, you know, all of our taste buds are different. And, you know, there are the folks who will absolutely die on the hill that Laphroaig Tin is the best scotch you can get, you know, that money can buy. I do not agree with those people, but I get it. Like, <laughs> I understand. I personally just happen to not agree with them. Um, I do have a bottle of Ardbeg that will be making an appearance. It's just not the tin. It's one of the mm-hmm. uh, the specialty uh, bottlings that they run. So that'll be in an upcoming episode. Um, I went on a bit of a shopping spree recently and bought a whole bunch of new stuff that I've never had. And so you'll be hearing a lot of new things uh, from my bar. The, what I'm on tonight is James Buchanan's Red Seal. Huh. Uh, this is, is former president. Uh, no, uh, okay. that was that James Buchanan, wasn't it? I don't, I don't know. I don't remember his first name. I have to look this up. You know how long it's been since I've had high school history? Uh, <laughs> yeah, the, he, was, uh, he was he was the fifteenth U.S. president. And, uh, oh, James his, Buchanan Jr. Okay, well, maybe it was his son. I don't know. <laughs> hmm. Um, so the the thing about this stuff is it's a it's a non age statement blended scotch. Um. I tried to do a little bit of research before the show to like learn more about this because there's not a lot of information on the box or anything, mm-hmm. and it turns out there's not a lot as, of information out there on it. What mm-hmm. I found out is it's a blend of Isla and Highland malts, which is kind mm-hmm. of an interesting combination, and uh, what's what makes it super good, what makes it super worth the money, is they have an expression of Dalwhinnie in the blend it doesn't say what it is what it does what what i've learned is it is something as old as a dalvini 21 huh there but like i say there's no age statement on it because it's just it's a random blend of whatever they apparently like but with some really high end rare dalvini in it so um it's Definitely different. It kind of gets into the territory of like a little bit of a Johnny Walker. Let me take a sip here. It's a. It's interesting because it, you know if you've listened to what I've talked about Scotch before, Islas traditionally have a really distinct smoky characteristic to them. Highlands mm-hmm. tend to be a little lighter, um, sweeter, brighter, um, okay, grassy, and so. The blend of the Isla and the Highland is like there is a smoky quality. Like I say, that's kind of where that Johnny Walker kind of comes through. But the Highland sort of pulls it down. It 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 mutes. It muffles the smoke a little bit in a really interesting way. And so you get kind of like a, a smoked pear kind of flavor coming through. Some like bright citrus notes um, mixed in there. It's pretty good. It has okay. an interesting finish. The finish is a very apple finish, actually, because you get, while the smoke flavor is gone, you're left with this sort of trailing iodine that comes from that Isla blend. Hmm. Um, what What is the iodine flavor you've mentioned? Like, how would I... I, I mean... I literally used iodine, like, for wounds, you know? Like when yeah, I was yeah. Kid, but that was so long ago. Um, well, I mean, that's... I mean, that's the thing, right? Because it's yeah. peat. Isla scotch is dried and smoked with peat 
um, from bogs. And so that is a very organic, it's got a lot of volatile compounds in it. That's where you get that formaldehyde kind of scent to it. Um, they got to punish Pete. It's a, it, the, the phenols is the, the word you're <laughs> looking for there is what you're getting. And that's why, like, when you smell like a glass of Laphroaig, Mm-hmm. You you immediately think Band-Aids and hospital. It's that iodine that comes oh, through. Oh, okay. Okay. So like the smoky Band-Aids flavor is is the iodine coming through. Yes. Got it. Okay. That actually makes a lot of sense. If, if you want to get like super technical, um, mm-hmm. the type of phenols uh, are called cresols, orthocresol. Uh, <laughs> these are the compounds that typically uh uh they're they're volatile i'm trying to think what the word they they aerosol uh, aerosolize you know they they get into the air real easily so like when you mm-hmm. pour a glass of scotch those compounds those volatile compounds break up and start floating into the air and that's why you get such a strong distinct scent of that and so and we we all have that medical point of reference and so we all tend to go to that when we when we hit those uh uh, those flavors. So there you go. Hmm. Cool. Chemistry lesson. Um, okay, <laughs> cool. Let's see. I'm ready to dive in. Are you ready to dive in? Let's do it. Let's dive in. Uh, let's dive into something kind of weird uh, that I want to spend more time talking about uh, in, in future episodes is different browser APIs. And there is a quote unquote new browser API that you can now go out and use cross browser. Um, Officially, Jen, Jen unless, Simmons. Unless you're using, unless you're designing for Internet Explorer, I, which yeah, does not I, I, not, go get your polyfill. Congratulations. Actually, I don't <laughs> even think a polyfill would work for this. Yeah, this is browser. This is like browser software level. Yeah, this isn't even API like abstraction. So Jen Simmons tweeted out earlier today that as of Safari 15.4, the Weblocks API is now fully supported, and that means it is now supported across all the major browsers. This is kind of one of those things that the use cases are going to be fairly limited, but it's also pretty neat to kind of understand how some of this stuff works and why why it does what it does. And um, obviously, we'll have a link to the MDN docs on this in the show notes to kind of help help break it down and, and understand it. Um, the way it reads, I'll, I'm going to read the MDN like definition of this. They say. The Weblocks API allows scripts running in one tab or worker to asynchronously acquire a lock, hold it while work is being performed, then release it. While held, no other script executing in the same origin can acquire the same lock, which allows a web app running in multiple tabs or workers to coordinate work and the use of resources. So... Hmm. This, I don't know, uh, talk to me about Ruby a little bit, Aaron. Do, do you have anything kind of like that in terms Because the idea of a lock, right? That a, yeah. a lock is a cross-language concept. This is like, yeah, this is like for like thread safety, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, think, I think one of the newer versions of Ruby um, added some thread safe stuff. I'm looking it up right now. Um, a lot of the thread safety stuff happens uh, like behind the scenes, at least on Rails. Um, I know there's a thread object and if you run things in a thread in a thread object block, it should maintain it in that thread. I don't have to do a whole lot of stuff with this. I, it does, it does have some concurrency stuff. I know that it's not nearly as 
baked in or as maybe as powerful for concurrency as like Go is, the Golang. Uh, but it, it does have something for it, though. I think when we talked about this a little bit right before the show with the JavaScript implementation, and the thing that I find interesting is the example you gave of, let's say that you had maybe two different sessions with your bank opened, for example. You're on your online bank, you just logged in, and you've got like a tab with your checking account and then a tab with like your bill pay or whatever. Right. Um, and you're requesting something like you're doing like a transfer or something in one of the windows. And so an implement, a usage of this might be uh, making sure that you're not doing that operation at the same time in both tabs because you wouldn't want to double, double transfer or anything. By yeah, accident. yeah. Um, and so what you were saying is that the, the lock is, uh, kind of global across all tabs and which is interesting to me because since Chrome browsers have been sandboxing tabs, like kind of like not containerizing them, capital C containerized, but like compartmentalizing them. Yeah. So they're, they they're run. sort of their own walled garden. Each. Yes. Yeah. As a security feature. And so what I was thinking is, well, geez, if if the browser is now saying, okay, we're going to allow breaking out of this walled garden for the purposes of locks, does this create security vulnerabilities? And I have no, I have done no sort of research into this at all. It was just like the thing that popped into my head was like, I bet someone's going to look into this. <laughs> yeah, the The best I could think of is, it would give somebody a way of knowing if they have multiple instances of an application open, though probably not know how many. But also, if it's your application, you could already know that. Like, you could write mm -hmm. code that would tell you that anyway, um, based off of session IDs or, or, you know, many other things. And for that matter, things like mm -hmm. sessions, those are a browser-level thing that are shared across tabs. You know, if I'm logged in on... Twitter mm, and I okay. open another Twitter tab, the browser knows that my session from the other tab should be used in this one. So it's not right. like we don't have browser that, level things that, that communicate, yeah. right? Unless you're unless you're in incognito mode and then the sessions aren't sure. Right, right. And I don't yeah. know I don't know how a lock might perform in incognito. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it would ignore that or not. I would assume not. Mm -hmm. But I don't know. That's that yeah, is a, I, I don't know either, and I'm really not trying to sew any, like, FUD or anything. I, I think this is a really cool feature, and I'm excited to see what we can do with it. But I've just been listening to a lot of the Darknet Diaries lately, uh -huh. the uh, hacking podcast. And so, like, that's, like, where my brain has been spending a lot of time. <laughs> well, yeah, it's, it's and it's always good to kind of let your brain abstract some of these and think about, you know, yeah, how what could I do with this? How could I do it? You know, it's yeah. not actually that much different from people who, like go use CSS and HTML to like make crazy animations and like mm -hmm. pictures of Homer Simpson and stuff like that. It's like, that's <laughs> not really what HTML and CSS are made for, but it's the outside the box thinking that teaches you different, different tools where, where I think about it a lot is like, especially anything that interacts with like a database, right? Because mm -hmm. for instance, MySQL doesn't have row locking. So th this is right. a similar idea where yeah. if a row in a database, I think uh, like Postgres has this, um, mm. if my memory is right. Yes. Uh, so when the database is accessing that row, it will lock the row and queue up the requests behind it. It won't try to access it simultaneously. Right. 
that's to prevent like asynchronous changes from happening that you know could corrupt a, a data row. MySQL doesn't have that. Um, race conditions, or as I've been race calling them in yeah. my job, racing conditions. <laughs> so. This is a way by which if you are building some kind of web app and you want to make sure that, hey, people are doing something that, you know, manipulates a database row. Like you said, use the the banking example of like, mm-hmm. yeah, you don't want to execute things against the wrong modified data or you might end up be missing more money than you expect or something like that. Right. Using a web lock, you could say, hey, if – if a transaction is pending, you know, to tell the bank what to do, don't run another one yet. Wait on it. Um, mm-hmm. And so any, it's like, it's, it's one of those, it just allows you to do uh, some flow control and, mm-hmm. and uh, traffic control on that to just be like, let's make sure we aren't letting all of this JavaScript, which is in, you know, different tab threads, let's mm-hmm. not let them collide with each other. Um it's an interesting idea, and as uh, Jen wrote in her tweet about it, it's like, what do you plan to do with it? What what could you see the value being on that? And, and I would be interested to hear. I, I would say any kind – you know how, like, in the past we've always had to do those things where, like, you, you double-click protection on a submit button? Right. Um, well, debounce does away with that. <laughs> yeah, debounce <laughs> functions are a thing. Um, yeah. A web lock kind of works like a debounce function in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, now, debounces can work in a lot of different ways. We talked about debounce pretty recently on the JavaScript mm-hmm. performance episode. Um, and so a debounce is like a way of preventing JavaScript from refiring something within a certain amount of time span. Um, so it's it's a little less, like, articulate and opinionated on, like, how it stops something from running. But a weblock, I could see, because the one, I guess the one thing I didn't check on, because caveat i've not used a web lock yet this is just the i've yeah, been through the documentation and it's still weird to me to look at modern javascript even like outside of a framework and like so and <laughs> <laughs> times they are a changing brother yeah I, i'm not even it's not even a judgment like good or bad or anything it's just very 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 different like, it doesn't even, like, if I saw this and I didn't know any better, I wouldn't think this is JavaScript at all. I'd think it was something else, some new language. Yeah. Well, speaking of languages and programming... Why don't we talk about our next subject? You ready to go to the hill? Okay, yes. Let's let's do it. Let's uh let's tough it out. So, <laughs> over so, at I guess hold on. Yeah, we should start with what the media is first. Yes, and I, we definitely want to start by plugging this video. So, mm-hmm. there is a video um over at uh the webbed briefs site. That's the briefs.video. Um, and it's, is HTML a programming language, um, came out on March 5th, um, if you're looking Mm -hmm. for it. So, uh, the, the web briefs site is just fun in general. Um, Yeah, it's like a, it's literally like six minutes, I think. Yeah, they're just like, and, and he's got all kinds of episodes on, you know, how do you draw a line? You know, why do people do independent work? Uh, is progressive enhancement still a thing? <laughs> what would you use ARIA for? There's all kinds of little topics that are fun. Mm-hmm. So definitely go like 
go check out what he has because it is uh very cool. That he hasn't that this latest one um has been almost a year uh mm. since uh, he has put one out. So just keep that in mind. Like this isn't like a weekly thing or anything like that. So right. Uh, but they're they're fun. And he kind of takes a tongue-in-cheek approach to, you know, some of these concepts. Spoiler alert. Within the first, what, 15 seconds, he answers very, very succinctly, yes. Yeah. Um, And then proceeds to go on uh, and discuss that further. So that's what we're going to do for a minute. (laughs) So, yeah. So the question is, is HTML a programming language? And there are a lot of arguments that go along with this, and we will make some of them. We might make a couple others. but I thought it would be fun to kind of explore that a little bit, given the nature of job semantics in our industry. Because this this can apply to people who do UI, UX. It can apply to people who do content strategy. Like, uh, all of these different roles. Are you a front-end dev, a back-end dev, a full-stack dev? You know, we've created a ton of granularity, right? And so, is it right to call somebody who just does HTML a programmer? Now... so. Aaron, I'm going to let you open because I know you have the answer to that. <laughs> so I think that this question at its core is pedantic bullshit. Because for anyone who isn't in the programming tech field, if you're not in there, then like, yes, it's a programming language. Like, And, and to say like, well, technically it's not because it's not Turing complete and it's declarative. Like, fuck you. Like, none of those, no one else who isn't in tech is going to either know or care what either of those things mean. And so, for communication purposes, strictly, like, yes. Just, I mean, just cut the corners and just say yes. Within tech, to say that whether or not it's a programming language, like, why does it even matter? You know, it's, it's a skill, it's a tool. No one's hiring you to write HTML to code, like, a, graphics library that's going to be used for a command line application or something like that. You know, it's a specific use case and HTML is for the foreseeable future and maybe indefinitely the best tool for this particular job in the same way that there are like other, like we use SQL um, across multiple different database platforms, different implementations, but SQL is what we use or like interacting with the database. And SQL is also not a, not any different than HTML as far as being a programming language. But like you, if you showed someone some SQL, they'd be like, oh, you're programming. And then are you really going to be that asshole that's going to be like, well, technically, no, fuck off. Okay. <laughs> These are some of the points that he makes in the video. I'm yes. wording them differently. But like, that's that's kind of like, the crux of it, I think. Well, allow me to retort. <laughs> so, I'm actually on the no side. I figured. I don't think HTML <laughs> is a programming language, and here's why. And I and this is a little bit of just straw man arguing, obviously. Sure. I agree with almost everything you say. And me mm. saying I don't think HTML is a programming language is not me saying knowing how to write good semantic HTML is easy or unimportant like it's hard Mm. and very important um it is an important skill for everybody who calls themselves a front-end developer Mm -hmm. 
I do like the word developer in that context because I think okay. development is about more than programming. Development is about building, right? Mm-hmm. Programming is one way in which you build things. But to that end, the language of the web is JavaScript. The programming language that drives the web is JavaScript. That's programming. On the front end. On the front, yes. And I'm, I'm yeah. only because HTML is yeah. front end. Like, right, right. at the end of the day, like HTML is all front end uh, thing. I, I would see that the programming language that that drives the that drives web browsers, well, that drives the presentation layer. Maybe that's the best way to say it. Yeah. However, you want to say it. Like PHP, you don't run PHP in the back browser. That's server side. Right. JavaScript can be server side now. Of course, we know this. Mm-hmm. Um, but. The only language you are going to run in the browser is JavaScript, period. Um, right. Everything else has to run somewhere else. As tragic as that is. <laughs> um, okay. So, anyway. Let, here, mean, go ahead. Go ahead. Here, here's my, my, our, my primary argument about it is mm-hmm. um, at, you know, it, SQL. I think SQL is actually another bad example um, for the same reason because mm-hmm. – Again, yes, semantically, SQL isn't programming. And I know you say, well, why why bother making the distinction? Well, I mean, on, mostly only because words have meaning. And if if we're not going to care what we call anything, then why care what we call anything? You know, I don't I don't disagree with that. And I and I do I do think that for language purposes, if we could step away from, I guess, from the reality and just deal with the strictly in a vacuum. And we're just dealing with the actual meanings of words. Okay, that's different. But I, I think when you when you think about this pragmatically, generally speaking, the HTML is not a programming language thing is almost always used by gatekeeping assholes. And yeah, like that's that's how it's used as a cudgel. Yeah, I a hundred percent agree with that. I think it's a silly debate to have. Most definitely, yeah. um, the where where I kind of stop stop to think about it is you know how many people how many front-end developers mm. literally only write html like that's not nobody like, nobody does that like every, everybody who's a front-end dev writes html css and most likely javascript like i or it, even if it's just html and css like there's still value in that yeah and and css is absolutely a programming language <laughs> i mean it is just, now for just sure. to yeah just to <laughs> you know water down my own argument about what is and is not programming languages but yeah when you look at like High-end CSS. No, that's programming. I don't care what you say. There are functions. I, I mean, there are variables. It's got all the things. I guess so. It's it's uh, it's a DSL. I mean, domain-specific like, language. HTML has conditionals. HTML so, has no. It includes. doesn't. IE had conditionals. Uh, doesn't that didn't it get implemented in other browsers too? But no, the reason it worked in other browsers was because. They it was a hack of using HTML mm-hmm. comments that would yeah. leave code commented out if other browsers were meant to ignore it, and IE just looked for the custom LTIE10 tag. Right. Remember, so right. that implementation was completely specific oh. to Internet Explorer and was yeah. just a hack. That um, counts, but I mean the fact that other browsers chose not to implement it, like that's but it didn't. But. They didn't have to implement it. They didn't need to implement it because IE was yeah. the one that was stupid. <laughs> uh, no, here's here's the actual. I do have a crux to my argument. Okay, um, which is 
markup languages are in no way functional. And in the you video, mean functional in the sense of function, they like don't programming. They do not do anything. Okay. And in the video, he makes a comment towards this, but I think he makes it incorrectly, and I think it is an important distinction because he says, okay. "What does HTML do? It tells the browser how to make something look." And what is a programming instruction except something that tells a, pro- a computer what to do? Mm-hmm. Except that there's no requirement for HTML to tell anything how to look. And in fact, it shouldn't. HTML yes. should never tell something how it's to about look. structuring the data. Right. Yeah. It's entirely yeah. about doing nothing but providing informational semantics. And then we have, as an industry, through mm-hmm. browsers, added presentational semantics so we say something like if it is strong then it is bold Mm -hmm. by default and we've made choices but those choices have no actual bearing on the html itself html does not care how you make it look Mm -hmm. it is it only exists to give the document structure and provide metadata that's it i would agree with that i'm I'm gonna again go back to my my point of pragmatism where uh defining making the word programming language words programming language into a value statement allows you to underpay someone or it allows you to um marginalize people who like you know you're not a real programmer like we talk we've talked on the show a lot about imposter syndrome um html is absolutely if you were dealing with the web you should absolutely know HTML. And if you're going to say that HTML isn't a programming language, then why the fuck do you suck at it so bad? Like, if it's so easy, then why is your HTML terrible? Like, it's it's a very important language in the sense of the ABCs of using the web. And I think that I think that too often this question or this this concept, this idea of HTML and programming language is just used like to be a dick to people. Mm-hmm. And, and I, that's, that's the part I don't like. And I don't, I don't think that I can get, I will concede more ground on the pedantry when we can get past the, like the weaponization of this. You know what? I, I would pivot the conversation too. Cause really mm-hmm. the, the ultimate discussion here is not on is HTML a programming language. That's actually the wrong question to ask in the first place. Okay. It's really, what is a programmer? Yeah, yeah. What what just what constitutes a programmer? Cuz to back to the comment you made about, you know, well, uh, who cares what we call it whatever. Mm-hmm. Cuz I then I really do raise the question of, well, is is a UX designer a programmer? Right. Is is a data I, I researcher think... a programmer? Somebody who makes their career writing SQL statements. Is that programming? Yeah. Because they and, and if you've ever met these people, they are the ones who write the database queries that will absolutely melt your skull. Oh yeah, no but, that shit is <laughs> but that is all they do. Like they, they right. went into computer science and learned how to do data research and learned how to write SQL syntax exclusively. Have you ever um have you ever used the R programming language? Um I have not used it. I have do you know been privy yet to see it. Okay. I, I helped I have a friend who's a postdoc and I was helping her write some R one time, so I got to learn a little it, bit about it's it. Intense. It's it's intense and it's like like why why would you choose to use this when there's so many alternatives? Yeah. 
because it's also powerful. <laughs> it's it is very powerful, and it's very like very specific, narrow use case, and it's very good at what it does. It's like SPSS yeah. if you've ever done stuff with stats. Um, but is someone if you're a researcher and you do stuff in R, is that programming? I I don't know if it's Turing complete. I don't know. I don't think it's. It, I think it might be functional. What, I think it when you say Turing complete, uh, would you describe that for folks? Because I don't know that everybody really knows what that means. Yeah, it's been a long time since I had college. Uh, if I <laughs> don't, recall, don't give the academic answer. Give like the the fun. No, no, movie I'll, answer. I'll I'll make my best guess, but please forgive me if I'm not completely accurate here. Um, it, it's something to do with being able to do computation, like computational, computational actions. Dude, I would so fail at whiteboards, at whiteboard interviews. Um, what, I, I, you're gonna have to remind me. Why, well, I, why don't we just use the easy Wikipedia answer, which is yeah, yeah. Turing complete means any real-world general-purpose computer or computer language that can approximately simulate the computational aspects of any other real-world general-purpose computer or computer language. That seems vague but reasonable. So, I, I've always seen it related as like. Can you do logical operations and essentially function as a calculator? Yeah. Can can you find a thing? Yeah. Effectively. And that's one reason why you said, like, you, you brought up the comment earlier that was from the video that HTML is obviously not Turing complete because it can't mm-hmm. do any of that. Uh, <laughs> Interestingly, CSS is, though. <laughs> uh, it, is it? I, I think somebody with the CSS3 spec, I believe CSS is now Turing complete. Okay. I am looking right now at an article at a coding to you Mm -hmm. that says CSS3 has been proven to be Turing complete. Hmm. In early 2001, Eli presented an example of CSS and HTML simulating Rule 110, which is Turing complete, at a Hack and Tell event. And I love that they they use the logical and and for that uh, title. (laughs) <laughs> it spread wi- widely online from Wikipedia's article on Turing completeness to professors' websites to blogs, Reddit, QA sites, and YouTube. This post shows that the original is not. Oh, this post shows that the original is not Turing complete, but presents a modification to make it more Turing complete. Huh. So it's kind of like it's it's at the event horizon. Basically, it sounds like that's just interesting. <laughs> okay, cool. Uh, I love this. Today this, I learned the, the, an example they give is. Um, two CSS definitions. One is div, and then it has you know the definition block display colon none, and then div last display block. Wow. I I don't know why you hate your browser so much to write something like that, but I'm <laughs> curious how that will behave. <laughs> I yeah, I like your point about like the idea of what is a programmer. I I think that. I think you can be a programmer and do things that are not necessarily programming languages. Well, here's maybe a better example. Let me me throw this at you and just tell me what you think about it. Mm -hmm. Is a web content manager a programmer Mm -hmm. if they know HTML? Hmm. Like, is that the the exception that disproves the rule or? I think if you looked at, what if if they were to show a random third party from the street, right? Show them what they do. I think a random third party who didn't work in tech would say yes. 
And I think that someone who works in tech might have differing opinions depending on how informed they are about this debate. Yeah. Which means that it's essentially a political discussion. And that's, that's why I think that all the pedantry in the world is irrelevant because as long as it's being used like as like a politicized point that hurts, that hurts people like hurts people's career prospects um, or like, gatekeeps or whatever and i know we keep coming back to this and I, i'm sorry for that it's just like no I, that... you're right you're <laughs> absolutely right it doesn't matter what you call yourself or what other people call you if you write html you are important if you are yeah. good at it that takes a lot of effort you know how many times how much html have you and i probably written between us and oh my god let me ask I you right now as far as like when is it appropriate to use an aside and should the aside be inside a main element or outside? And can you have more and, than one H1 on a page? Yeah. Yeah. And like, so like those sorts of discussions about like the rules, the implementation, the nuance, those are exactly the same kinds of discussions that you would have formally with your colleagues about like, well, you know, should we use compositional inheritance or like, do we subclass it or like, you know, what, what is the correct approach to take here? It it requires you to understand the nuance of how this thing with a computer, when you're communicating with the computer to tell it what you want it to do, giving it directives, you know, knowing the correct directives to give it. And I, I think in that sense, this is a bit, requires a bit of eye squinting. In that sense, they are the same to do them correctly. And, and I think that the same people who are willing to say that it's not a programming language are also the people who like will ask who find CSS frustrating or who write shitty HTML with too many divs or, <laughs> or tables. You know what I mean? Like they, they are so willing, easy to dismiss it because they fucking learn Java in college or whatever. And big fucking deal, man. <laughs> like I learned Java in college too. And I don't use we, it anymore. We got uh, Aaron riled up tonight, folks. <laughs> No, no, I it's, just hate it when people are shitty to each other, man. It, like, it's that's... great stuff, and I, I really <laughs> want to hear what y'all have to say about it. So, yeah, tell yeah. us: is it a programming language? And more importantly, do you care? Is yeah, is it a yeah. valuable discussion to even have at this stage of the game? Because I think that's also part of it in terms of the, getting this past reminds this. me. This reminds me of the question that I see come up all the time, and I do not want to get into it right now. But the like, is Ruby on Rails dead? It it ha it's like a perennial thing that comes up in every fucking forum everywhere, and it's so like I just assume anybody asking it now is just trolling, and so like I respond accordingly because <laughs> it's it's ridiculous. Like I mean, GitHub is built on Rails, and like so is Shopify, and like I mean, it's not used everywhere. It's not as ubiquitous as Java, but it's not dead. Still releasing active things. RailsConf is still going on despite the stuff. Um, <laughs> and those yeah, same people are the ones who want you to use Go. Just remember that. <laughs> I actually, I'm learning Go at my, my job where I've had to do, I submitted a PR with some Go code in it. Um, it's neat. Uh, it's, it's weird. <laughs> it's very, very different. Um, but cool. <laughs> Okay, last but not least, 
we want to talk about Wes Boss. I think anybody who listens to us is probably very familiar with him. Uh, he is brilliant and also happens to be one of the hosts of the Syntax podcast, which if you don't listen to it, you definitely should, uh, because it's everything we are except better in every single way. So be sure they are on your list if they are not already. Um, he is a, a web unicorn. I mean, I, he pretty much knows something about everything. And he is a great teacher of that stuff. And last year, he put out, and I believe we tweeted about this. I We may have even mentioned it, but I wanted to go into it and talk about it a little bit and mm -hmm. about why, like, it's worth looking at, which is uh, if you go to westboss.com slash JavaScript, mm -hmm. link will be in the show notes, as always. Um, he has what is called the JavaScript Notes and References. And it is designed to be a companion for his beginner JavaScript course that uh, that he's got. And there's also a repo over on GitHub with all this stuff. And it's basically a ground up, here is everything you need to know to become badass at JavaScript. And it is so good. From top to bottom, in my opinion. Huh. Um, I'm looking at the last course in it. And it's called the Web Speech Colors Game. Um, and it uses the Chrome API with Web Speech, where you can talk into your mic and it will translate that into text. Yeah. And and then it just changes the background of the page into that. That's such a cool little thing. This is really not neat. your mama's hello world. Yeah. <laughs> to yeah. say I the mean, least. that is also, it's the it's num exercise number 84. It's the penultimate exercise. But uh, yeah, this is... This is really cool. I um I I may work through this at one point. This like kind of covers all the things. Yeah, it I mean, like you said, that's F84, there is an 85th. So mm -hmm. there are a total of 85 and we'll call them lessons. Some of them are exercises, some of them are just teachings. Mm -hmm. Um but it's so cool and one of the things I wanted to draw attention to is early on um let's see it is number 19. They have an a primer on closures. Oh, yeah. And closures are one of those sort of like harder abstract concepts to get your head wrapped around sometimes. And you'll frequently, like when you're looking at tutorials or listening to somebody or talking about code, you'll frequently hear this word thrown around. Mm -hmm. And it can be really like blinding to kind of know what does that mean and he gives such a good explanation mm -hmm. of, of how a closure is built why it is called that um and i i can't recommend it nearly enough to go in there and kind of look at that um basically and and i will try to summarize what a closure is but it won't be better than his um <laughs> is it's basically a function that can access data from its parent even after the parent is closed. Hence, closure. And so what makes it cool is it is a way of doing things like creating private variables that only that function can access, but you can't access from console. It's just stored in memory. It doesn't get garbage collected that way. Mm -hmm. um, so you create a function 
You set a variable, then inside that function, you return another function that uses that variable for something. Well, now it can't be manipulated. It can't be changed except by that function. So it's mm -hmm. like if you're familiar with PHP, um, uh, you can do it in JavaScript classes and stuff too, but um, Java certainly, you know, this notion of like static and private uh, mm -hmm. uh, methods and variables and things like that. This just gives you kind of a real super lightweight way of doing that. That's very cool. I understand the concept of closures. Uh, we we use them in we have them in Ruby, but we don't call them closures. Um, but uh, it, I swear it makes my brain melt when I try to think about it. Yeah, when I try to think in terms of closures and like passing things around, and I oh. Well, no, and that's why it's such a hard I concept. I mean, yeah, yeah, I can, I can, I, I effectively the way I interact with these is almost like cargo culting. Like, I just like, okay, I know that to get this result, these are the incantations that I have to write to tell my computer to to do it this way. But like thinking in it from an abstract like point of view is just a brain melt. Yeah, it's it's the kind of thing that. It's hard to explain, it's hard to understand, but once you've seen it, it makes a lot of sense, and he just does a great job of that. I mean, like I say, Wes is an absolute stud when it comes to, like, getting into this and teaching and, and helping people understand stuff. So, this, and I mean, that's just one, hoisting. Like, right before that is the section on hoisting and what that means. Scope. Scope's a fun one. Scope's pretty easy to learn and get, but he starts off with the welcome with, you know, what is the browser, the editor, the terminal? Um, how do you make variables? What are the different types? You know, all these very foundational, basic components goes into functions, declaring functions, debugging them, these bits about scope hoisting enclosures, and then boom, you're in the DOM, events, and you're building stuff. Mm -hmm. And before you're even halfway through all the material, like, he is giving you things to build that are real things like not again i say not not hello world like the first one is an etch a sketch that uses canvas to draw colored lines which you know is i i'm not an animator like doing canvas stuff mm -hmm. i tend to stay away from unless i'm doing d3 or something like that so like that is that is not trivial work at that point like you but you're very quickly built or put into building something real Mm -hmm. Um, and so the whole thing turns into what is effectively sort of a very human centric version of MDN for a lot of JavaScript stuff. You get good definitions of what these things are, good examples of what they are, but in a less sterile environment than what MDN provides them in. Mm hmm. Yeah. This was definitely, um, the audience for this is definitely someone who, uh, wants to learn JavaScript but doesn't know it yet, whereas like MDN is reads more like a reference main thing. Like you have to know what you don't know, and this assumes you don't know what you don't know. Yeah, and it's really well organized and and very I, complete. Like, like yeah, the the amount of stuff you said eighty four lessons. Like you get into promises and await and cores and all of this stuff. You get into how you build your own modules and publish to. Uh, to NPM and stuff like that. So again, by the time you're done, 
you have been exposed to an enormous amount. I've, I've been using this phrase a lot lately, and I don't know why, but <laughs> you've been exposed to a lot of surface area. Sure. So that, you know, we were saying earlier, you know, you don't know what you don't know. Uh, mm-hmm. That's kind of what, you know, exposing people to the surface area of a programming language uh, why why do I bother bringing up the the Weblocks API when most people probably won't ever touch it? Because it's at least good to know it's there, so that if you mm-hmm. run into a problem that you need to solve where that might be the solution, you're smart enough to go, maybe I should Google that and see if that is applicable to what I'm doing here. Um, mm-hmm. And so this stuff going through and, you know, target audience-wise, it's like, hey, if you're a good mid-tier dev, okay, fine, skip the first four. Jump in later. Yeah, uh, I just looked at block 10, harder practice exercises. Number Exercise number 55, face detection and censorship. And I was like, what is this about? It's showing you how to use a like a, a JavaScript API that will blur your face. Um, it's, it's an internal uh, experimental Chrome flag you can enable. And it will do face detection and blur a face using a canvas element. Like, what? Yeah. This is this is really cool, but it's it even and then exercise fifty eight building a gallery exercise fifty nine building a slider. <laughs> <laughs> I was really hoping the first line of the slider one would just say "Don't." <laughs> <laughs> well, and the fun part about uh, the uh, building a gallery is you scroll mm-hmm. part way down, and one of the topics is closures involved in it. <laughs> <laughs> So it's like here's this word again coming up, and now you know yeah. what a closure is. Um, is is there anything like this in Ruby that you know of that you want to share? Um, so there was a long time ago. Um, there was a, a guy named Why the Lucky Stiff. Um, wrote a comic, uh, Wise Poignant Guide to Ruby, and. It's not the same as West Boss's JavaScript guide, but um, it's like discusses Ruby like by via comics. I, I believe the whole the whole book is, I think, available online. Um, see, I, I think the difference here is is a really like low level paradigm difference between JavaScript and Ruby because, um, like JavaScript came about as a way to run like logical stuff in the web browser uh, because we're not going to talk about HTML being a programming language. <laughs> I'm glad you and, said it. <laughs> and, and it be in it, you know, like it has grown a lot since then. Um, but at its core though, like JavaScript presents in a very similar way to like a C or a C plus plus kind of language. Uh, like the syntax and everything is very similar to those. Um, Ruby was developed by um, uh, Mats. Uh, I think it's Yukihiro Matsumoto. Or Matsumoto. Um, and his whole point of making the language was to make programming a delight for the programmer. Um, and I mean, as someone who's been writing Ruby for like, what, 11 years now, uh, I can say like is absolutely my favorite programming language. It's just like super easy to read jet like 90% of the time. Um, and it's very easy to write and I still can do powerful stuff in it. Um, and so why the lucky stiffs pointing guide to Ruby kind of approaches it from that way, like starting off with 
like a real like kind of subtle and fun entry into it and then being like okay check out some code then we're going to talk about it a bit look at this more code and then we're going to talk about that and then he gets into some higher concept stuff but it's it's less a little less academic i guess i don't know it's cool uh it's a poignant dot and that's spelled p-o-i-g-n-a-n-t dot guide and then if you want to read the book online i think the whole thing is freely available it's slash book yeah we'll we'll throw show notes links in there for that it's cool like i mean just reading just the first first couple pages or chapters or whatever it's uh it's a neat read and hold on after that we will be right back Little three for episode I enjoy sometimes, just kind of throwing a potpourri out there. Um, in particular, be sure to let us know what you thought about any of these. A, will you use the Weblocks API? Is that something that is interesting to you or that you want to find a use case for that may solve a problem you have? Let us know is HTML. Uh-oh, nope, Aaron's going to interject. I, I would know, I, before you get to the next one, I would be legitimately interested if, if any of you out there are um, working the security sector and know yeah. anything about weblocks and can like discuss any of the possible like vulnerabilities of it or like vectors you might use for something like that i'd be really curious to know just purely for trivial purposes because like, it's neat and <laughs> i'll even i'll go a, a different direction on that and, and tack on any other browser apis that you think are interesting like i've grown very fond very quickly of the intersection observer api it's very useful. I it's incredibly handy for determining things for like when stuff needs to change on a page or or look a certain way. Um, but like Aaron, you mentioned, you know, from uh, Wes's JavaScript deal, there's a camera API, there's location API, there's all of these browser APIs mm-hmm. you can tap into. And so I would be curious to hear what. And we've you know we, we ourselves have suggested on the show in the past, like one thing we really need is a privacy API, a privacy consent API Mm -hmm. to help with things like GDPR and cookie compliance, something that we can standardize against. So I would love to hear not just about this, but any other browser APIs that you find particularly useful, helpful, um, and and how, because those could very well end up on future episodes then. Um, (laughs) the, uh, The argument over HTML as a programming language, look, we don't really care if it is or isn't, but I would love to hear your thoughts on it all the same and and where you think where does the label programmer end um so to speak with folks uh i think i think that is a more healthy discussion to have at that point um but even then um you know there are different ways to come at this and and how we get into that forking into the php is dead arguments and oh the even us and and i've said this you've heard me say it jquery is dead right (laughs) <laughs> well, it isn't, and you know it's it's a little bit gatekeeper of me to be like, don't use jQuery. That's ridiculous. Don't use Bootstrap. Why are you using these frameworks when you can do everything vanilla now? Like, well, because it helps you learn. You know, like it it helps you pick up idioms. There are a lot of reasons for those things. So, like this gets into a much, I think, larger sort of topic and discussion just about how we approach technology and each other when it comes mm-hmm. to what we learned, what we're good at. Because here's the thing. It ain't much. But there's still demand for Flash developers out there these days. Really? It ain't much, but they exist. There are still companies out there with legacy stuff. 
there are still there's still demand for COBOL programmers. There's oh, I know about that. There's still demand for Fortran programmers. Like just because something is old or out of date doesn't mean that being an expert in it can't be Isn't, useful and valuable. Here's here's a fun thing to end the show on. Isn't it um 2039 or something? Remember in, in the Y2K with the end of 99 rolling over to 2000, this whole thing with dates. Yeah. So we're we're coming up on the 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 end of epoch or, or is it like we can no longer represent dates in integer format because the number of seconds since January first, nineteen seventy, will have like will exceed the size of an integer. I I know of what you speak. You know that what sounds about? very familiar, but I don't know the date. But I know the thing you're talking about. Hold on, I gotta look it up. Oh, year two thousand thirty-eight. That's it is two thousand thirty-eight. Um, existence systems which measure Unix time since uh, C time with assigned thirty-two bit integer. So the number of seconds will overflow at three fourteen zero seven UTC on the nineteenth of January two thousand thirty-eight. Huh. <laughs> well, so it's the same kind of problem, and I, it's going to be a lot of cobalt all over. Again. I'm I am well defended <laughs> and have plenty of freeze-dried food, so don't worry. I'll I will make it. Um, but then, uh, lastly, your favorite tutorials. Uh, have you used mm. West Boss's JavaScript stuff? What do you think of it? But what do you? What else do you refer to that you find to be great learning uh, resources? I'd love to hear that. Um, I recently finished the Alifant, uh tutorials just to see how they work. Have they added more to that yet? Uh, not yet, no. Um, so it's just the four base lessons. They're all pretty straightforward. If you know accessibility, they're probably you're going to blaze through them. But it was mm-hmm. interesting. Um, yeah, uh, it was it was interesting. I'll say that. Um, and I, I'm going to cool. keep an eye on it and see if they add more to it because I do think uh, it has the potential of being a good resource for folks. Yeah, for sure. Um, so let us know. Let us know all that stuff. Yeah. If you have any favorite tutorials, please send them in. Maybe we could make like a page on our site with like oh. tutorial links or something that we like, like our favorites. Yeah, I like that. And we will we'll like look through the ones that you all submit, and then we'll pick the ones that we really particularly like. I like that a lot. Um, yeah. So let us know any of those things on Twitter or Facebook.com/slash DrunkenUX or. I guess I mean I guess you can technically message us, but really you should just check out our uh, dank meme stash on Instagram.com slash podcast and come and chat with us. This is probably the best place to let us know anything at all. Drunkenux.com slash Discord. And with that, we conclude this episode of the Drunken UX Podcast. This has been episode number 112 for April 11th, 2022. This is your host, Michael Feenan, inviting everybody to say goodbye to your other, other host, Aaron Hill, for this week. He will be back in two weeks. And please keep your personas close and your users closer. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.